0: So today is 4th of July, Independence Day, independence celebration of the uh, creation 200 years ago of this particular society, this country as a society of people dedicated in theory to justice, (laughs) to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, right? That's the the first few lines of the Declaration of Independence. We're going to be independent and free. Um, And a lot of people came to this country um, over many, many generations um, from circumstances which weren't free. Some of them came because their countries were at war or there were pogroms or things they were fleeing. Some came as religious refugees because they were being uh, oppressed in their countries. Some came as economic refugees and some, not a small number, came as slaves. African American is the, the largest, most predominant number millions of people brought here as slaves and in the early years as well some indentured servants and slaves from different European communities although in much smaller numbers. People came when they weren't dragged here in chains um, for the most part trying to make a new life Um, and the country was um, big and kind of uh, developed on the principle of independence, which really meant, in part, take what you could get. Um, there's very little in our contemporary history, um, as, as we learn it in school, that talks about the fact that this actually was someone's country. Uh, um, but instead it was, well, if you want freedom, you know, go further west and take the land that's there from the next group of tribe, the next group of Indians or Native Americans. Um, and make your own place and be happy. And the more you have, the bigger the land, the more things you own, whatever, the more you get, you, the happier you'll be. And the more independent you are, the happier you'll be. That, so that was our kind of cultural myth, to be completely independent, your homestead, depend on nobody, be really free. What does it mean to be free? You know, in America, to, that you can do anything you want, is that freedom? You can own any kind of gun you'd like, even if it's a bazooka or some, you know, terrible kind of weapon of mass destruction, but freedom is to have anything that you want, right? Or buy anything that you want, is that, I and mean, that's how our freedom is advertised a lot in some ways. I heard a joke. <laughs> um, it happened during the Pope's visit to New York a few years ago. He was returning from this visit to the cardinals and cathedrals and so forth, had to return to Rome, and he was being taken to the airport in this limousine. And the Pope and his party were in this great big stretch limousine, said, you know, we're late. You know, the traffic is tight, but we're really late, so driver, step on it, please. But the driver wouldn't do it driver kind of went around the speed limit and they opened the window again and said, please, we're going to miss the plane. This is important. This is the Pope. You've got to drive faster. And the driver turned around and he said, I know that uh, you are the Pope, sir. He said, but it's my job and I've already gotten a couple tickets in the last two years. And if I get another speeding ticket, I lose my job. I have five kids. I've got a family. I can't do it. So the Pope thought about it for a bit. He said, I can help. He said, stop the car. Stopped the car, the Pope got out. He said, let me drive. (laughs) (laughs) So now the Pope's in the front seat. He said, you get in the back. So he's driving along. He really wants to get to his plane, going 70 or 75 miles an hour, and he gets pulled over. (laughs) This is not meant as an anti-Catholic joke, by the way, so we could (laughs) take this just for the pleasure of it. Um, He gets pulled over, you know, flashing blue, red lights, whatever. May I see your identification, please? The policeman, hands him the identification, He says, wait here a minute. He takes it back to the car, kind of check it on the computer. Gets in his car and starts to read it and his jaw drops. He looks and he calls up the station. He says, chief, I got a problem. I pulled over somebody I shouldn't, a bigwig. The chief says, who was it, the mayor? He says, nope, bigger than that. He says, was it the governor? He said, nope, nope, no, worse than that. He said, "Uh, was it uh, the president? He said, no, worse than that. He said, well, who was it? He said, I don't know. But whoever it is, the pope is his chauffeur. (laughs) And freedom the bigger the car the better the bigger the house the more money the freedom to buy anything to travel anywhere to do what you like is freedom to follow your wishes and desires then Thoreau who went a rather different direction with freedom said that many men go fishing for their whole life without realizing that it is not fish that they're after. You understand? There was a study done recently, I mentioned it a month or two ago, of young people turning <laughs> voting age about their relationship to this land of freedom and independence. And then the questions that were posed to this, these people, this kind of poll, young people, They were asked, if they were in trouble and arrested, um, did they believe that it was important that they should have a trial with a jury of their peers to judge them? And they said, absolutely, and they were really strong about it. As Americans, we deserve a jury of our peers to judge our guilt or innocence. Then further down in this poll, they were asked how many had ever or would be willing to serve on jury duty. Well, nobody wanted to do that. They wanted the benefit of jury of their peers, but they wanted somebody else to serve on the jury. We live in a society which at this time, an independence day, is for the first time um, in our history spending more as a nation, more of our money on prisons and the criminal justice system than on all of our schools and education put together. Imagine that. What does that say about freedom and independence to us, about desire, or what we foster in the human beings in the society? I have a friend who recently came back from Yugoslavia, uh, a theater person who's going there to work with people in the theaters, and a kind of arts community in Croatia, and very concerned about the situation there. And she came back and she said a couple of the things that she had seen, started to tell me the stories. We had a few minutes together. She said, I had a circle for the young filmmakers and actors and theater directors and so forth that I was working with in Zagreb, and I asked them what was the effect of the war on their lives. And most of them said no effect at all. You know, they were doing their art, and sure, they all knew somebody who died, and it was Croatians, they were in Croatia, but it was villages over there. Um, I don't think we can even use the word denial anymore because it's become too common. Um, I think maybe the word trance would be a better word, (laughs) that a kind of collective trance happens where we don't see what's happening around us. She said the worst... Was a yo- group of young filmmakers that she was spending time with who were all getting rich by going, taking mini cams and going to the front and shooting footage for CNN or World Television Network. You know, and they were making their fame and making a lot of money and bringing it back. And there was an auction for the footage every day. They'd rush back, you know, and there would be this room with the network representatives from Geneva and various places and people would say well I have footage with three bodies and two decapitated heads and somebody else would say well my footage is burning, uh, buildings burning and people leaping out of it and then they would get bids on their film footage <clears throat> so there is a way in which we live in what is sometimes called in the, in the Indian cycle of world systems We live in part in the Kali Yuga. That is an age where the forces of greed and hatred and ignorance and prejudice and racism and fear and delusion are very strong. It doesn't say that there isn't wealth, because we clearly have that too, but that those other forces are very strong. The Buddha, after his enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, recited a poem or a song that begins, O house builder, thou art seen at last. But I've seen a better translation than that, which is, O prison builder, you are seen at last. No longer shall you build the prison of selfishness, fear, blindness, ignorance, grasping, hatred, and delusion. Free am I, free from all of that delusion and all of those forces. Never again to be lost in that. So I talk about these things today because it is Independence Day or Interdependence Day, better. And I want to ask you, what is your rudder in these times? In times where there is ease and beauty that many of us living in Marin experience, where there is a lot of wealth in many ways, and at the same time where we see or O.J. Simpson, it was turned into like a Roman circus. This is a human being in extreme pain being put on the news as if it were Rome. Or the healthcare questions where we're debating whether the poorest and weakest members of our society are going to get um, cared for. Or Bosnia or Rwanda, you know, or the epidemic of AIDS or the other injustices that we know in our hearts happen in the land of what's supposed to be a place of justice. What is your rudder in the midst of this? You know, when I fly on airplanes, which I do a lot, teaching retreats and stuff, periodically, I don't know, every 10 or 20 or 30 flights, you hit a rough one. Last coming back from Europe a few weeks ago, we were bouncing so much in a sort of storm over the North Atlantic, that um, all those, you know, things on top were opening and the suitcases were coming down and showering down in the aisles and all the inside structure of the plane starts to shake, you know, and the stewardesses are holding on or the, the attendants or whatever they're called in their chairs. And, and um, you know, I remember landing in Denver Airport a couple of years ago in a uh, thunderstorm and you see the lightning all around and stuff. Um, and I sit in my seat, mm-hmm. <laughs> start to do loving-kindness meditation for my daughter and my wife, who may never see me again, or I may <laughs> never see, and people I love, you know. What do you do? What is your rudder when you hear that a good friend has cancer or you turn the TV on and you see Rwanda or the betrayals that happen to us as a society or individually? Because you can't take a teacher with you, you know, and a philosophy doesn't help much on an airplane. So that's a question for you. Maybe I should just stop for a moment and ask, what do you do in the face of things in the Kali Yuga, personally or socially? Where do, what, how do you keep your self true? Anybody? helps, I don't always remember to do it, is to extend a small kindness or act of generosity. To extend a small kindness to others, act of generosity. Thank you. Who is the person who came up to me during the break, the filmmaker? Where are you? you want to say what you said? Um, I said, well, that recently during uh, a surgery I found that uh, my meditation helped me, that I just accepted what was happening from being really busy as an artist and filmmaker to having significant surgery and then realizing well this is my place of practice breathing loving kindness meditation slowing down when you can't walk fast and taking your slow walk as it is is the meditation what else others had their hand up please Trying to experience a bigger picture. How do you do that? Well, the airplane. Mm-hmm. I'm just beginning to think about if I was going to die, what that might mean in a bigger <coughs> picture. So in some way to look at it from a higher place. From a higher place or some bigger perspective. Thank you. Please? I pray. You pray. Yeah, Wonderful. Pray. Do you pray? Do you pray to any... Thing or one in particular or just prayed? Um, to God and to the spiritual teachers. Mm-hmm. So prayer. Thank you. Parents of teenage children know that one really well. They go out the door and it's you've done your best and you pray. <laughs> Others, please. Yes. That was good for about 25 years, and then I started um, looking at what might have motivated me to look for that kind of consolation. And so it's coming, uh, personally it's coming into a bit more uh, <coughs> inwardness, inward exploration about my motives. Uh. And then maybe after that, there will be more availability to act appropriately, rather than just accepting it in a sort of Hindu <coughs> type of way. Yes. So first looking for some way of understanding the suffering, the karma, (coughs) looking for it, but then recognizing that that becomes consolation, that understanding is not really the solution to that sorrow, and then turning that question inward. Please, one more. The big picture plus turning it over. The big picture plus turning it over. So perspective and turning it over. Thank you. The Buddha said, when I'm gone, in the last bit of his life, he said, um, don't follow or place all of your reliance on elders or teachers, but rather follow the Dharma, the universal law, and know these things for yourself. Know the forces of grasping and hatred. And ignorance. Really know what they are. Let yourself see them. And know that it is possible to find freedom from these. If it weren't possible, I wouldn't tell you about it. He said, know that that's possible. And then as you live your life, be aware of what brings goodness about in your life, what brings freedom from grasping hatred and delusion. Nourish that which brings that freedom, sustain it and support it. And be aware of what increases the unskillful things, how you get entangled and reduce those things keep away from those things, diminish those things when you know your own true way your way will express the universal way, the Dharma so this is a kind of independence, isn't it? in a way It's not relying on someone or some philosophy or something, but it's seeing these very forces that create every possibility. The forces of love and the forces of hatred, the power of understanding and the power of delusion, trance. And seeing directly in our lives what is the source of each, what creates freedom, allows us to experience freedom, and what creates entanglement. So the first part of it is to see things the way they are. This is his recommendation for a rudder, to see the truth, (coughs) to acknowledge the suchness of things. My good friend Ajahn Sumedho, who is the abbot of this big Buddhist monastery in England, goes out every morning with his monks, 80 monks in their various monasteries, with their begging bowls through the English countryside or in London, I've told this story sometimes in the past when they first lived in this little flat in London and he would go out every morning with his begging bowl and very rarely would anyone put any food in it, but he just did it because he was a monk and that's what you do. And then one morning he was walking through the park and a man stopped him and said, what are you? He said, I'm a forest monk from the forests of Southeast Asia of Thailand. He said, well, what are you doing living in London? Well, the Buddhist society offered us a little flat here and I'm out with my begging bowl because that's what monks do every morning, allow people to feed us, and we just offer ourselves for that. And the man said, well, I have this beautiful forest, and I would look for someone to take care of it. Will you take care of it if I put it in your bowl? Put a little note in, one forest, here you are, 400 acres. So, but Ajahn Shah, our teacher, when he told us as monks that we must always go out in the morning, he mostly did it for us, for that, to live a kind of integrity in this life. No matter where you are, he said, go and do that. And take whatever is offered. Nothing, if that's what it is. But he said, there's one other reason for you to go out. And that is, I don't know how many of you have seen the film Little Buddha. But in it, the Buddha has these messengers that come. That He lives in the palace and then he sees a dead body and he sees an old person. and He realizes the world was not the way he thought it was. And he sees a sick person and he's shocked by these. And finally, the fourth of the great heavenly messengers that he sees when he goes out and looks in the world is a monk. And he says to his charioteer, who is that monk? And the charioteer said, that's someone who has taken into his heart the great question of human suffering and human freedom and left the entanglements of his life to go and seek an inner peace and an inner freedom, which inspired the Buddha then to follow suit. So my teacher would say, so you must go out with your bowl every morning, with your robes and your shaved head, because you never know, there might be the Buddha standing on some street corner in London, just waiting for that sight of you to walk by, to be reminded. So what is our rudder? The rudder is to see what is true, no matter what, the suchness of things, the truth of change, the truth that the things that we get are fundamentally unfulfilling. Some of the poems or things I'll speak of as we go on tonight come from Sharon Salzberg's new book, I have her manuscript on loving kindness, which will be out at the end of the year, it's a wonderful book. Um, W.H. Auden wrote about suffering. They were never wrong, those old masters. How well they understood our human position. How it takes place when someone is eating, or opening a window, or just walking dully along. The things of our life, in the end, are not capable of fulfilling our hearts. What would renunciation then be as lay people? You're not monks or nuns. To recognize and accept what comes into our life and to let go of what leaves our life. That's a kind of renunciation. To see that we cannot grasp or control most of the things of this world or own it. And that fundamentally our happiness comes from our integrity. Without that, there is no real happiness. There's pleasure, but you remember the morning after, don't you? Come on, some of you must. <laughs> I do. I. There's pleasure, which is what it is. Pleasure is just as much as it is. It's pretty empty after a while. What brings us fulfillment is seeing the truth and living with integrity. And so this is the rudder where we shift from the things outside ourselves. We shift our identity to our true nature, our Buddha nature. (coughs) Can you rest in that when you go into surgery or when the airplane wings are flapping or when you face um, things in the society, in the Kali Yuga, where it looks like it's Rome. It really does sometimes, you know, like a circus. The suffering of people is placed there as if it were part of the entertainment. And it's in the, really why we come and sit, to reconnect with something that's deeper, that's timeless in us. The Buddha said, victory creates hatred, defeat creates suffering. Those who are wise strive for neither victory nor defeat. It's a really different message than the common one. Can you hear that? And yet it's true in the end. So the Dalai Lama said, I failed in my campaign to help save Tibetan people and Tibetan culture. You know, it's been a failure. And when he was essentially attacked by a large group of, militant Tibetans who want to start fighting against the um, Chinese army, occupation army in Tibet, he said, if you must do that, you must do that, but I can't condone it, and I would simply have to resign as the head of state of Tibet, because even if I have failed, and you think that way would succeed, it is not the Dharma, it's not the true way, no matter what, and I, I could not be a part of it. That's a rudder for you. That's a sense of integrity in the midst of very, very difficult conditions. And in that, there is a true independence. Independence from greed. Independence from grasping. Independence from hatred. Independence from ignorance. That's a real freedom. Imagine that a freedom in the midst of any kind of circumstances. And with that, naturally comes, like breathing in and breathing out, the respect for all life. Because when the heart is independent, it doesn't mean that we withdraw from life, but that we love life most deeply. If you most deeply love life, you can't be greedy and grasping and hateful and deluded. So from the independence of heart, independence of the changing conditions, knowing what's true and following it, comes this beautiful connection with life, the interdependence of life. There was an old forest teacher, Tangpulu Saito, who came one year to the three-month retreat We taught every year in Massachusetts at the center, three months of silence. And one day I escorted a student, that was in the first days of that retreat, up to see him. And she had a brain tumor, brain cancer. And she'd been through all kinds of treatment and finally they said, this is all we can do, there's no more we can do for you. So she was coming up to see him. And I thought he would look at her and say, well, Now it's time to let go. Now it's time to die, because medicine has done all that it can, and there's birth and old age, sickness and death. That's the natural law of things. And he was a teacher of that. He talked about that often. It was quite interesting, though. She came in the room and told him the whole story, and he said, come sit closer to me. And as a monk, he couldn't touch her, but he put his hands around her, and he spent this incredibly long time doing prayers and blessings and making holy water and making medicines and he had he said I want you to come and be with me every day during this retreat and it was like it was his own daughter It was like it was his own daughter and he said we must do everything we can to keep you alive because life is precious and you're here and you can practice and if you die we will teach you meditations so that you can know how to die well but not prematurely It was quite amazing so there is in this freedom from grasping and hatred and ignorance, there is the, a, a kind of upwelling, a spontaneous and innate caring or loving kindness. There's the space for that, which is our true nature. In any moment, when the Buddha said, I became free, he said, I became free from selfishness. And in that moment, there is this spontaneous kindness. Now when you do loving-kindness meditation as a regular practice on retreat in an intensive way, or at home, the recitations of may I be filled with loving-kindness, may I be peaceful, have well-being, body and mind, and then you gradually learn to extend it to a benefactor, to friends and loved ones, to neutral people, and finally even to enemies, people that are difficult for you. You do this as a practice over and over again. After you've cultivated the quality of loving kindness very deeply for all of those categories, then often the teacher will test you, bring you in and you've really cultivated this and say, all right, here's a test for you. Cultivated the sense of connection and interbeing with all things, love for all things. Now you're going through a forest and you're attacked by a band of bandits who say they want to take one of your party and that person will be killed and you are with your benefactor your friend the neutral person that you've done your loving-kindness for and your enemy who do you sacrifice yourself. so what was the answer yourself. someone said yourself how many would say that <laughs> some of you does anybody have another answer remain silent uncommitted <laughs> <laughs> Remain silent. Uncommitted. Is there another answer? Any other answers? Your enemy. Hmm? Your enemy. Your enemy? Certainly, we've tried that. <laughs> Call for volunteers. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, as in all these situations, there isn't a right answer. It's always a dilemma. Can someone tell me what the right answer is? But in this traditional question, at this time in the practice, when your heart is really open, you know, one might wish to say, well, myself, as somebody said, that's a kind of natural thing. And there are lots of stories of the the Buddha as a bodhisattva sacrificing his life to the tiger and things like that. This sort of sense of great self-sacrifice. But in the cultivation of this meditation, when the loving-kindness becomes really universal and authentic, you can't answer the question. You can't do it. You can't sacrifice yourself, or your friend, or your beloved benefactor, or your enemy, or the neutral person, one more than another. We somehow confuse independence with a kind of aversion for dependence in our culture. We have a cultural bias against dependency, against any emotion or behavior that indicates weakness. This is nowhere more tragically evident than the way we push our children beyond their limits and timetables. We establish outside standards as more important than inner experience when we wean our children rather than trusting that they will wean themselves. When we insist our children sit at the table and finish their meals rather than trusting they will eat well and enough if healthful food is provided on a regular basis. Or when we toilet train them at an early age rather than trusting that they will learn to use the toilet when they're ready to do so. It is the nature of the child to be dependent And it is the nature of dependence to be outgrown. Dependency, insecurity and weakness are natural for children. They're the natural states for all of us at times, are they not? But for young children, especially, they're the predominant condition. And they're outgrown. When we refuse to acknowledge the stages prior to mastery, we teach our children to hate and distrust their weakness and dependence. We start them on a lifetime of conflict, conflict with themselves, conflict with others, using external standards to set up an inner duality of what is immediately their experience versus how they're supposed to be. Begrudging dependency because it is not independence is like begrudging winter because it is not yet spring. Dependency blossoms into independence in its own sweet time and true independence leads to interdependence. They're really the same. There were monks in the forest with the time of the Buddha who got their meditation and were so intent on getting enlightened they didn't care for one another. And finally the Buddha heard there was this one monk who was sick and lying there, feverish, and he wasn't being cared for because everybody else was busy meditating. And he went to this monk's hut And he personally took off his robes and washed him and cleansed him and cared for him and then called the entire community together this was in the earliest years and he said i don't know what you men i'm sure it was men what you men have been doing right (laughs) but this is not the way if you think the meditation is just to withdraw into yourself this is not the dharma he said this is one of your brothers who is sick if you don't care for him, who will care for you? You should care for him as if he were the Buddha himself, which he is. And it's like that, those parables that came well, five or six hundred years later. It's the same parables really, isn't it, from Jesus. So what is our rudder? I suppose the biggest change I see in people in their spiritual practices, our personalities don't seem to change very much. I'm sure you've noticed that. Get more eccentric, maybe. (laughs) But somewhere inside there's a kind of faith or knowing of what is true or what is just for oneself and others. And that, like loving kindness or compassion or speaking the truth, not just because you're supposed to You know, and sometimes when it's very painful, speaking the truth to self or others, because your integrity is, in a sense, all you have, and you know it, you're really aware of it. That's the change. So you don't kill or steal or lie in the same way as perhaps when spiritual life really touches your heart, because you can't in the same way. It's If you find even a moment's freedom from grasping and hatred and ignorance. It's so sweet. All those other things are based on the body of fear. They're based on greed and fear. And the biggest change happens when you realize that's not the way. It's not how I can live anymore. The perfumes of sandalwood, jasmine, and rose bay drift as far as the winds will carry them, and no farther but your goodness rises even to the gods that you can take even beyond the grave (coughs) you know there was a famous study that was done probably you heard of this in some of those horrible places where we put old people in this culture remember how old people used to be part of the villages but in the places where We don't have villages anymore. I'm not saying you should take your elderly parents and grandparents into your home. I don't know what you should do or what I will do. But I feel the loss of the village where we all help one another. And in one of those places, beautiful plants were brought into the room of every elderly person there. And half of the group were told, this is your plant to care for. Pay close attention to it, water it, care for it. It's your responsibility. We want to give it to you. Please look out for it. And in the other half of the rooms, here's a beautiful plant for you to enjoy. We'd like you to enjoy it as much as you like, but you don't have to worry about it. Our staff will care for it for you. We'll take care of it so you can just enjoy it. And after a year, the people who had to care for their plant lived statistically longer and healthier and we're rated by the other members of the community as more connected just from that simple thing of caring for the plant for the damn plant i mean think about it it says something really deep about our life and maybe about what real freedom is The thought manifests as the word, the word manifests as the deed, the deed develops into habit, the habit hardens into character. So watch the thoughts in its ways with care and let it spring from love born out of concern for all beings. One of the things that is a rudder in these times is to know that no matter what the circumstances, we can plant seeds, seeds of clarity, seeds of spoken truth, seeds of respect, seeds of loving kindness. When we understand that that's who we are, that we're given this time in the world to plant seeds, and out of those seeds we will change and the world will change accordingly. In the Kali Yuga, you can't say, all right, I'm going to change it and make it a different age. It's not Rome anymore. I mean, certainly We can do all kinds of things and must in the face of the injustice of the world, in the face of the hunger of those without food. But the freedom of our heart doesn't come just in those kind of social actions. It comes inside when we know how how we are to live our life all the time, our ordinary life the quality of loving-kindness is really a freedom of the heart. True metta, true loving-kindness, is timeless. Because in the moment that there is this sense of loving-kindness, we have stepped outside of need and expectation and plans and hopes and disappointments. We step outside of that small body of fear and sense something greater that we are all a part of like those people in that room with the plant that they cared for. We are so connected. And in that place, it almost, it's not a question of what will happen. You do your best, maybe you pray, as somebody said, but it's this moment that matters, again and again. May all be well, as if you were the Buddha. May we be filled with loving-kindness. May we be peaceful. And in any moment, of inner freedom. It's like a lamp in the darkness. It's like finding the true way. It's like you sit as the Buddha again for a moment under the Bodhi tree and say, oh, prison builder, I've seen you at last. Your walls are shattered. The rafters are broken. I don't know that these talks are really of much value. Honestly, and they're kind of reminders of stuff that everybody knows. I do them to talk to myself mostly because it's my job, right? It's true. It's a very good job as they go most of the time. Some days it's hard, but mostly it's wonderful. People are on their good behavior, right? We're out in nature in nice places and stuff. Um, But really their purpose is just to be a reminder. Nobody can do it for you. It's really more a question to ask yourself you know when you are most lost in this world what supports your living in truth what is your rudder Encountering this moment, these people, this circumstance, I am here, I am one with it. Bringing my heart to it, I will awaken all beings. I'll bring myself to this moment. When people asked the Buddha about social difficulties of those times, he was an advisor to various kings and ministers and politicians and so forth, beside the Dharma teachings that you hear often here, he would often speak about the need to be aware of the causes for things. So in one kingdom where there was a great deal of thievery, he didn't say build more prisons. He asked for the causes. Is there enough food? Is there enough medicine? Are people respected and cared for? That was the question he asked. And when we live in a time when we now spend more money on criminal justice than on schools, we have to ask those questions very seriously and ask what kind of seeds are necessary to plant at this time. So let's sit. We have a few more minutes left. What I'd like to ask you to do is what you said you didn't want to. And that is I would like you to turn to one or two people near you. And since you reflected before about, in this talk, about what supports you in difficult times, just in a simple sentence or two, tell another person what is your rudder, what do you use, and listen to them and after, we'll just take five minutes to do it and then we'll do a little chant and and we'll end, please find one person and if you don't find one, find two no more than three people together though and raise your hand if you're looking or just join a pair if you need to okay, come back again That wasn't so bad, was it? (laughs) Let yourself sit again for a moment, kind of reconnect with the silence and rest with what you spoke and what you heard, letting that just be there in your respectful attention. Let yourself remember a time or a moment when you are most free in your life, free from possess possessiveness, from grasping, from hatred, from ignorance, really awake and loving. When your Buddha nature shines, and do that in your life which nourishes these qualities let's chant the simple sound of opening or letting go ah.